if you're not already in. It's a weird thing to say, I guess, really, isn't it? Because I'm speaking to the people who are in, and I'm saying, come back in. And they can't hear me. <laughs> My name is Mark. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central Church. It's a privilege uh, to be here with you this morning. And uh, so great to see uh, familiar faces and to meet new people as well. If you are new to us, um, we hope you feel very welcome here. Uh, we have a welcome area, and uh, I guess hopefully you don't just feel welcome because we've got a welcome area. Hopefully you feel welcome because we're a welcoming people. But uh, we do have a desk up there that you can find out more information about us, and there's some little cards that you can fill out uh, just with your email address on and your names, and then we can send you weekly emails uh, just to update you on what's going on in the life of the church, and you can contact us if there's anything that you want to ask us about. It's a good way to keep in touch. So please do take time to do that at the end if you haven't done so already. All right, just in case you are uh, unfamiliar with us, uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark for quite some time now, and we're up to the end of chapter 12. We'll be heading into chapter 13 a little today. And uh, so that's what we're preaching through. If you've got a Bible, you may want to turn to that. I'm reading from the NIV, and it will be on the screen as well. You can follow it in any um, translation of the Bible and in any language. If you have one of your own Bibles, that would be great as well. We're going to uh, not read this whole in one whole chunk. Uh, first of all, we're just going to do the first bit first, which makes sense. Um, and the context is a, a whole number of leaders, religious leaders, have come and they've been challenging Jesus. He's in Jerusalem now. Uh, he, he kind of uh, threw over the uh, tables of the money changers, drove out the sellers and, uh, and people who were trying to just have a, a, a thoroughfare and uh, in the temple. And then he had a lot of religious leaders coming and asking him questions, challenging him. And he was answering them all, different groups we've looked at over the weeks, very uh, cleverly answered them, really. And uh, now at this point, Jesus uh, begins to turn the tables on them in another way. He's already turned the tables. He's turning the tables on the religious leaders. And uh, he's beginning to uh, comment on them uh, now instead of them commenting on him. He's beginning to question them. It says in verse 34, uh, they don't dare ask him any more questions. And uh, you can kind of see why, especially if you read Matthew's version of this. Uh, but we're going to read the first five verses here, uh, verse 35 through to 40, and just comment on those very briefly in chapter 12. Uh, while Jesus was uh, teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. Then how can he be his son? The Lord, the large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the, in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So very briefly, on, certainly on this first part, Jesus uh, is taking a passage from the Old Testament, the Old Testament Psalms, Psalm 110, if you, you want to know where it comes from. And he takes this psalm and he says, he's challenging the teachers of the law, really, who, who talk about the Messiah as the son of David. It's a phrase, actually, that has 
commonly been used uh, throughout church uh, history as well, uh, although maybe not quite so much just after in the early church because of what Jesus said here. Um, he says, they talk about the Messiah as being the son of David. He said, but how, how could he just be David's son when David himself is saying about the Messiah, he's calling him Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, that's the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put enemies under your feet. He said, you know, he, he can't just be David's son because David is calling him Lord. And uh, it's quite a clever way. In, in one sense, you might think, oh, Jesus is just kind of being picky. He's just trying to make fun of the teachers of the law. And uh, in, in some ways, he was trying to ridicule them, really. It says the crowd uh, were delighted at uh, listening to him with delight. They were enjoying it. They were enjoying him uh, poking fun at their religious leaders. But Jesus is making a serious point as well because um, he's actually saying, even though the Messiah is from the line of David, so he could be called David's son, he's far more than that. I mean, Jesus is the Messiah. He's far more than that. He is, in fact, the Son of God. And so Jesus was trying to um, change people's perception of who the Messiah was. Now, as I've said, the tables have very much been turned on the leaders from this point, and Jesus starts to warn the crowd about them. Um, spiritual leadership for uh, the uh, Jewish nation has increasingly become distanced at this point from the spiritual leadership that God ordained. Um, do you remember when Jesus was at uh, when David himself, sorry, when David was anointed by Samuel back in 1 Samuel. And remember, all of uh, Jesse's sons were paraded before him, and there were some very strong ones, very uh, tough-looking ones, outwardly very impressive. And uh, God kept saying to Samuel, well, look, no, there's someone else. Until Samuel said, is there someone else? Oh, yeah, but it's just the youngest one, David. He's out in the field. He's, he's not going to be the one. But he came forward, and God said, this is the one. And the whole point was, God looks at people's hearts. He doesn't just look at the outward appearance. He looks at people's hearts. And David became anointed king. Um, outwardly, not all that impressive, although God was teaching him things. But he sees a heart that is devoted to God. That's what God looks for in those he wants to have authority and leadership. He wants us people with soft hearts, people with servant hearts, people who love Jesus, love God. And that had, that had changed over the years. And now there's all these religious leaders, and many of them, there's one or two exceptions that we see in the Bible, but many of them not really following in that way. When people whose hearts are after God, when people's hearts are after God, they devote themselves to serving others like Jesus did himself. And he demonstrated that, didn't he, in the Gospels. He washed his disciples' feet. But, uh, but when people's hearts get more self-centered and more about the power that they're getting, uh, then they start to do things for themselves, and actually others suffer because of that. And that was what was happening to the religious leadership of the day, and that's what Jesus is pointing out to them. He begins to criticize the leaders. And as I say, if you look at the parallel passage in Matthew 23, which is a whole chapter, pretty much, of Jesus tearing in to these religious leaders, it's a pretty fearsome and scathing uh, rebuke of them. It, it's difficult to read. Um, Mark gives us a very abbreviated, a shortened version of it. Um, but Jesus really lays in to these religious leaders. He says they love to have profile. 
He says they love to have the attention focused on themselves, and they have Im the important seats in, uh, in the synagogues and at uh, the places of honor at banquets. He says they uh, love to make a show of their lengthy prayers. Uh, Jesus wasn't too big a fan of lengthy prayers. You might think, oh, Jesus wasn't a fan of lengthy prayers. He wasn't a fan of lengthy prayers. He thought it was showy. And in uh, Matthew 6 and verse 7, he says, uh, when you pray, don't keep babbling on like pagans. They think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need even before you ask him. And then he sets out how we should pray. But uh, we're not supposed to pray lengthy, impressive prayers to impress other people. And that was their motive behind it. It wasn't because they had lots to pray about. It was because they wanted to look as though they were spiritual. And they liked that. They liked the, the respect and the, oh, no, they're, they're great. They're very spiritual people. They loved their titles. It's all the opposite of what Jesus came to show and what Jesus said a leader should be. Ultimately, as well as washing his disciples' feet and serving people in that way and touching those who no one else wanted to touch because they were unclean and going to those who no one wanted to know because of what they did and because they were sinners, he eventually, of course, died on the cross. He humbled himself even to death on the cross for us. And there's always the temptation for those of us who are in leadership to enjoy the praise of people, to enjoy the adulation of people, to enjoy the sense of power that they can get. You know, you're on stage, you've got a microphone, you've got people listening. There's always that temptation to enjoy that too much, to, to abuse it. And uh, that's not to say leaders don't appreciate encouragement. We do appreciate encouragement. Uh, it's biblical to encourage people because of what they do. But it's biblical to encourage each other. We want to encourage each other. There's no, we've all got different gifts. We all bring different things to the church. And it's not as though leaders should have special privileges. Leaders don't ha shouldn't have special parking spots in the, in the church parking lot. They shouldn't necessarily be getting a bigger office the more senior you are. Or any other privileges like that. Because, and we see it in the local church sometimes. And we see it, we see it definitely the more... Uh, we've got had the internet uh, era now and uh, the culture of celebrity preachers springing up. And some of what can come from that can be pretty nasty and pretty horrible. And uh, I'm not saying all of it is that. There's some people who genuinely have got a humble heart and they serve. And, um, but, but there's always that temptation that is there to misuse that power and to enjoy that so much. So we deliberately here, we, we want to go by uh, our first names. We don't want to go by titles. So we're just, uh, those of us who are uh, working for the church and are pastors, we're just Mark and Joe and Brent and other of the elders. Just go by our first names. It's not Pastor Mark or Pastor Brent or Apostle Joe or Prophet Gary. And we don't, we don't go by, <laughs> we don't go by those titles. Uh, <laughs> Jesus tells us in this passage in Matthew 23, he, he, he talks about that a little more, doesn't he? He, he says, um, I should have got this uh, bookmarked. He says in, in verse uh, 8, you're not to be called rabbi. This is to his disciples. You're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And don't call anyone on earth father, 
for you have one Father, and he's in heaven. And nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So we don't go in for the titles. And uh, of course, we can, we can say what we do. So I can say I'm a, I'm a pastor of the church. I'm an elder of the church. That's what we do. It's the same as uh, people say, oh, you know, I, I serve in the church on the welcome team or I, I serve at, at drop-in. But we don't go for the titles because we wouldn't, we wouldn't start calling people, oh, you know, drop-in Debbie or anything like that, would we? Or, uh, that, that's th- we don't give them those titles. So why would we say Pastor, <laughs> pastor Mark? It's only the same thing. I have to be looking for drop-in Debbie now. I had to, I had to go, it sounded better with alliteration. I thought drop-in Keith and drop-in Susan sound quite as good. <laughs> Look at what Peter says. He talks about this in his letter as well. In 1 Peter and uh, chapter 5 and verse 1. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. Now Peter, he's the, guy, he's the guy who Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. So if anyone is thinking, oh, I'm it, and, and you can read Peter in the early days, and you think that's what he was thinking. Um, but at this point, he's writing the letter, and he says, uh, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. And he's not pulling rank. He's not, pe- he's not saying, to, to all you elders, I appeal as the rock on, Jesus, on whom Jesus said, I will build my church. He says, no, I'm, I appeal to you as a fellow elder. Um, and witness to the, of Christ's sufferings, um, he goes and says, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So if anyone should be full of his own importance, it should be Peter, but Peter's saying, no, that's not the way. He's seen there's a different way. He's seen what Jesus is saying. He's seen what it's all about, and he's grasped that importance of following Jesus' example and being filled by the Spirit and leading in a different way. Jesus also says in Mark uh, that the religious leaders devour widows' houses, which is an interesting comment, and we'll come back to that in a moment because, uh, as we'll see, we're just coming on to the next passage now, the widow's might, and it ties into that. Well, let's, in fact, let's move on to that right now. So you may have seen uh, the title come up, The Widow's Might. And when you see that thing about The Widow's Might, you might think, oh yeah, I know this story. I know where this is going. I, they, they seem to have cleverly, cleverly manipulated this to come just before the gift day. Um, <laughs> it's just the way it's panned out. Um, but actually, um, you probably think you know the story. You probably think you understand where it's going. Um, but maybe, maybe we don't. Um, so we're going to read it in context. Um, just to see what Jesus really is saying here. Often things are divided in our Bibles with little headings and, uh, or chapter headings, and sometimes they come in not very helpful places, or they give a heading which isn't actually very helpful. Those were added later on, by the way. They weren't part of the originally inspired Bible. They're often just put in by people who edit the Bible. So we're going to read from... Uh, let's, go, let's go back just for context, and we're going to go back to verse... Um, 38 again, which we've already read, and we'll read from 38 through to 13.2. All right. 
So as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat opposite the place where the offerings were being put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put everything in, all she had to live on. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what magnificent stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. All right. So, what's Jesus saying here? Well, let's remember, Jesus is seeing that the temple isn't what it should be. The temple started out to be a place of prayer for all nations, the house of God, the place where God's presence dwelt. That's how it began. Uh, but now it's become a, a, a place for thieves and, and robbers. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's why he turned the tables over. And there's corruption and there's uh, extortion of people, um, profit-making going on all overseen by the religious leaders, all overseen by the Sanhedrin. And Jesus hates what's going on in the temple. And so here he's pointing out an example of what's going on that he doesn't like. And what's happening is this. Crowds of people are coming and they're putting their offerings into the temple treasury. This is a, a separate offering that goes on and it's uh, specifically for the upkeep of the temple. It's for the work of the, of the temple. And uh, what would have happened is there would have been several like receptacles, um, kind of con-shaped or trumpet-shaped, I guess, funnels. And people would have come along and they would have poured their money into these funnels uh, or, or, or those receptacles. And it would have made quite a noise uh, as it was all pouring in through this, uh, through this trumpet thing. So he, uh, he sees rich people coming. Perhaps some of them are leaders that he's been talking about. And perhaps they're making quite a show of, uh, of, of, of that they're putting in large amounts of money like Jesus was commenting on. Perhaps it was just that they were putting a lot of money in and you could hear there was a lot of money going in. Uh, they, it wasn't intended, perhaps, because um, they're, they're putting all these coins in and it's like it pouring out. Uh, a bit like when you get one of these um, uh, fruit machines. I don't know what you call them here. One what do you call them here? The slot. slot machines. Uh, one arm back. <laughs> well, that's what they call them in England. <laughs> fruit machines. Get an apple out. Oh, great. <laughs> slot machines. You know, when, when you win it, it starts to all pour out. It could have been a bit like that. Anyway, he's seeing that happening and lots of people putting in these, this money. And Jesus points out what, they're at, what the reality is because it might look as though they're being very generous. It might look, oh, putting all this money in. Look how, how wonderful this is. And Jesus is saying, well, you know, they're giving out of their wealth. They're giving out of their wealth. It's not as though um, they're, they're really short of money. Um, if someone gives a gift of $10,000 and, uh, and it's known that it's a gift of $10,000, that might 
look impressive. We might say, oh, well, they're so generous. We might, we might decide to give them a, a special plaque uh, you know, because of the, their large donation. We, we might decide to honor them somewhere uh, and say, oh, how generous they've been. But Jesus, you know, it's like if they had a million to start off with and they're giving 10,000, actually it's not all that much in reality. They still have 990,000 for themselves. Even if they gave 10% and gave 100000 they've still got $900,000 left. Uh, so it's not much of a sacrifice, even though it might look impressive, even though it might look showy. They're not on the poverty line. And that's what Jesus is saying. They're giving out of their wealth. They're giving out of their richness. And then he sees, in contrast, this poor widow coming. And she just puts in two copper coins, just a small percentage of a day's wage. And again, it would have potentially been noticeable by the sound going in. She walks to the front and she's got this big funnel. She puts it in, ding, a little chink as these two copper coins go in. Maybe people would have looked down on her. We, d we don't know. Uh, maybe people would have been very aware, well, she's not actually giving very much at all. But Jesus is discerning, this is a great deal of money to her. This is a great deal of money. In fact, everything that she has to live on. Proportionally, she's given 100% of her wealth to the upkeep of the temple. Now, the big question is this. What does Jesus think of this? What's Jesus saying when he's commenting on it? Is he pointing it out to commend the widow in this situation? And I must say, when I've heard this this story being preached on and, and taught on, I would say most of the time people would say, yes, yes, Jesus is commending her for her generous sacrificial giving. Um, and I guess if she's given it of her own free will, um, I guess Jesus maybe would commend her for it. But I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that's what's going on in this story in the context of what's going on he doesn't jesus doesn't say anywhere in that passage she's done well he doesn't anywhere commend her to other people and say you need to do what she's doing now he does that quite a lot of times in other places when things are oh you you need look at how the little children are they're so great you need to be like little children you need to follow my example in doing this he's often saying to his disciples this is what you need to do he doesn't say to his disciples this is what you need to be doing. You need to be following her example. Let's look at the facts. She's a widow. She's a widow. In her culture, she's not able to go out and get work. And her husband's died. So she's got no real means of support. We know she's a poor widow. So she's had no money left to her. She's very poor. She's just given the only money she had to small copper coins. So she's given everything she had to live on. How's she supposed to eat? How's she supposed to survive? Is she under pressure to give from the temple authorities, from the religious leaders? I think from the context of the passage, yes, she is. Jesus has just been speaking about the teachers of the law, and what's he said? They devour widows' houses. They devour widows' houses. And here's a widow who's just got given everything she has to live on. Well, that's a comment on the religious leaders of the day. 
They're saying they're devouring this widow's house. There can be pressure put on from people in positions of authority or positions of influence. And the results can be devastating. It can leave people with nothing. It can leave people in poverty. It's unjust. It's wrong. Today, we might see it again on TV or on the internet in the form of preachers and saying, oh, send me your financial donations. Yes, you might be struggling, but you send me what you've got and I'll pray for you and God will bless you and I'll pray for your healing if you're sick. And it's horrible. To be honest, it's horrible because these are people, they don't know the people they're asking to send. They're not pastorally caring for those people. They're just on the TV. They're just on the internet and they're saying, give me your money. Give me your money so that I can do whatever I choose with it. I can get a private plane so I can go and fly about and preach the gospel in more places. It's horrible. It's horrible. It preys on the weak and the vulnerable. And it's sickening and God hates it. And it can happen in a smaller extent in the local church too. It can happen. But you might think, well, surely it's a good thing for this woman, this widow, to be giving to the temple, to the house of God. Well, maybe, maybe, but maybe not. Because immediately after they leave, the disciples say, oh, look at this temple, though. All this money that's going in to fulfill it. Look at these big stones, this magnificent structure. And Jesus goes, it's all going to go. It's all going to fall down. It's going to be destroyed. And it was. And it was. The temple was destroyed just a few years later in AD 70. And actually, there was no need for the temple anymore. There wasn't going to be a need for the temple in just a few more days' time because Jesus was going to go to the cross and he was going to die as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And after the resurrection on the third day, the Holy Spirit would be poured out and a few weeks later, the church would be established and the place that's a house of prayer for all people is going to become not the temple, but the church because people from every nation is going to be gathered and joined into the church and the Holy Spirit is going to be dwelling and that's where God's presence is going to be made manifest, in his church. And that was just a few days later. So the temple, it might look magnificent. It might look impressive. It might take a lot of money to come to put together. But it's, it's irrelevant anymore. It's not needed. Because the church is coming about where God would meet with all humankind. So the money that this widow has given, everything that she's got to live on, it's gone to waste gone to waste. When we look at this passage in context, we see Jesus hasn't suddenly broken off what he was saying. He's For chapter after, well, passage after passage, he's been criticizing the religious leaders of the day. He's been commenting on what's going on now and, and, and attacking them and, and saying this isn't right. And he's not just suddenly broken off that to say, oh, but look at this woman. She's doing a really great job. But anyway, back to the religious leaders again in my big long diatribe. No, it's all part of what he's doing. It's all part of what he's saying. And as I said, if you read uh, through Matthew's gospel, it, it highlights this. Matthew 23 and 23, Matthew 23, verse 23, says, um, 
Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You give a tenth of all your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. <laughs> He's kind of laughing at them here, you know. But you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. He's saying you might give you 10%. Great. But what about all these other things? What about your spiritual leadership over the people? What about justice? What about mercy on people? You don't care about those things. Jesus, it, this passage primarily is commenting on leaders. He's commenting to leaders. And the irony is that over the years, teachers and preachers have taken this passage, which is really directed at them, and they've misused it to say to the people, come on, be like this widow, give everything you have and trust God. But, but Jesus is talking to leaders here. I've become very aware of that this week as I've prepared for this message. Let's apply it to our situation, shall we? Because where are we at? Because here we are. We are a week away from our gift day. We are being led by God to come into a new building. And you might think, well, there's a temple and here's a building and there's a lot of parallels here. Well, first of all, let's just remind ourselves that we're not about a building. We're about the church. We're about what God is doing in and through the church. And so whether we have a building or we don't have a building, this is what's important. And God's at work in us. And it's what God does in and through us and how we reach a world that is lost, that is far more important. And we've had many years without a building to meet in on a Sunday morning that we can say is our building. And we're believing that actually at the moment God is providing a building, but only for so that it can facilitate all of the things that he's got for us to do in reaching this community in Devon and in Fredericton and beyond Fredericton. So hopefully you've got that context. If you've not heard some of the things that we've said over the last few weeks and months, please try and listen back to those online if you're able. But yes, we're, we're entering a building project where we believe we're going to need hundreds of thousands of dollars to complete the purchase and renovations. So as elders of the church, we have to be very careful in how we lead the church in this. Because it's all too easy for us to fall into the situation that, that the teachers of the law fell into in Jesus' day. I've known of churches in similar situations where they've said to their people, so come on, instead of tithing now, we're going to double tithe. I've known of some who've said, we're going to triple tithe. We're gonna, you, now we want everyone to give 20% of their income, 30% of their income to the church. Now for some that might mean a great deal of financial pressure. For some it might... For some, it might be the opposite. For some, it might be, oh, I can give, I, I can give three hundred thousand dollars, and I've still got seven hundred thousand dollars left. But for some, it might mean a great deal of financial pressure. The problem isn't with someone giving that amount in, of their income in faith and obedience to God's problem prompting. The problem is when it's legislated, pretty much, by those in authority. When it gets heavy. It gets heavy, and it's legalistic, and it's pressured, and Jesus condemns it. So how should we view these gift days that are coming up next week and the week after, and how, as leaders, do we lead into them? So I think we can look for other examples in both the Old Testament and New Testament to get some helpful 
biblical ways forward. So we're mainly going to focus on actually the Old Testament. Um, then we'll skip forward and refer to some of what Brent's been preaching on recently in Second Corinthians. But let's go back to when the temple was being established. Um, right back in, uh, in David's time. And uh, things hadn't become corrupted. And so in First Chronicles, we read of David raising money for the temple. And he wasn't going to build the temple himself. It was going to be his son, uh, Solomon. Now, I referred to this passage on our vision evening. Um, so apologies for that if you were there and uh, you think it's just repetitive. I think it's worth repeating. And not everyone was there anyway. We're just going to look at some of these passages in First Chronicles 28. And we're going to start in verse 20. Um, so this is, this is what David says to Solomon to start off with. David said to Solomon, his son, be strong and courageous and do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. So first of all, we have this exhortation from David to Solomon, who's going to be the one who's, who's in charge. He's going to be building the temple. Don't be afraid. Be courageous. Do the work. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. There might be some difficulties. There might be some setbacks. But God's with us. And interestingly, that's a theme that's come up quite a lot as we gathered it the other week for our week of prayer. Um, and we were praying into a lot of these things. In, a, in, a, in more than one meeting, uh, as we sought God, there was this en- exhortation and encouragement to us as a church. Be strong, be courageous, don't fear. God's with us. God was encouraging us so, more, so much in those things. There might be setbacks that we face. There might be challenges. It's very easy to begin to fear the worst. It's very easy to get fearful and to shrink back. And God's saying, come on, let's not be afraid. And let's not be discouraged. We need to keep going back to God in prayer whether it's about this or other things that might be going on in our life and saying, I've got to remember, God's with us. I know he says this in his word. I know he's told us this prophetically. He's led us into this. He's not going to leave us. He's with us. Even when one thing after another might come up, we need to keep encouraging ourselves. So that's the first thing. David encourages Solomon. Then they begin giving toward the temple. They begin giving towards the construction of the temple. So who does it start with? It starts with David himself. Chapter 29. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one who God's chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task, task is great because this palatial structure is not for man but for God. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God. Gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood. Onyx for the settings and turquoise, stones of various colors, all kinds of fine stone and marble, all in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. Over and above everything I've already provided for this holy temple. And then he starts to list those things as well. And then he says at the end of all that, now, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today. So David gives first. He says, this is what we're going into. And actually, I'm not going to be the one to build it. He's actually going to not even be around for much longer. He's going to die before it's completed. But he says, 
Solomon's going to be the one. I'm going to encourage Solomon in faith. And then I'm going to lead. And I'm going to lead by, by giving uh, of, of, of what he had, presumably in his, uh, as the king, all, all that went with his kingship. And then he said, and actually, all my personal stuff as well. So there must have been some extra somewhere, some different distinction. He said, I'm going to give that as well. And this is all going towards this. And then he says, now, who's going to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? What happens? Verse 6, then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribe of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the work on the temple of God, 5,000 talents and 10,000 tarots of gold and 10,000 talents, and it goes on, what, what they give. Um, anyone who gave precious stones gave them to the treasury. Verse 9, the people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders. For they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. So the leaders are the next ones to give. And what happens? The people are seeing the leaders giving. And it's a willing giving. It's, it's not under any pressure. It's a willing response. And the people are going, this is great. And David's going, this is great. And it's great, and it is great. Just there's a free, willing, wholehearted giving. Then David prays, and he praises God, and he says, "Yours, Lord, is the." I've got time to go through it all in detail. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor. Everything on heaven and on earth is yours. Wealth and honor come from you. And then he says in verse 14, "But who am I, and who are my people that we should be able?" to give as generously as this. Everything comes from you. And we've only given you what comes from your hand. Who am I that we should be able to give as generously as this? You might say, uh, you're the king. That's who you are. <laughs> that you might be able to give as generously as this. He's not saying that. He's saying, it all comes from God. Whether I'm giving of all my wealth or whether we're giving out of not very much at the moment. It's all from God. It's all from God. Everything comes from you. We've only given you what you've given to us. The only way we can give to, give to God generously is through God providing to us generously. And he does do that. But the main thing that we're seeing in these leaders here, in David and in the other leaders, is a heart and a desire to give. He's seeing a heart and desire to give. And then God enables them to do it. It's not the leaders passing down the responsibility to the people. It's not David saying, we're going to build a temple. And so we're going to increase taxes. And everyone's going to pay more. And the temple's going to get built. And that's how it's going to get done. It's, it's dumping on the people. It's not what David's doing. David's saying, God's leading us into this. He's put that desire in my heart to do this. I want to do this because it's going to be a place for God to be worshipped and glorified. And do you know what? I'm going to give all of this resource, and I'm going to give all of this resource as well. And then the leaders are like, we're with you. And they're giving what they've got as well. He's leading them in the grace of giving. Years later, we read in 2 Chronicles 31, another offering's taken up. This time the king is Hezekiah, 
He does the same thing. He leads the way. You can read about it. 2 Chronicles 31. 2 Chronicles 31. He leads the way in offering his own possessions. And then all the other Israelites generously begin to give the first fruits of everything that their fields produce. And they start to pile it all up in heaps. You're getting all these heaps coming. And it says they began doing it from the third month right through to the seventh month. I, I don't know if they, were, they weren't equivalent months, but the third month, March through to July. Interesting. Anyway, that's what's happening. Hezekiah comes and he sees these heaps and he praises God. And he blesses the people and he asks the chief priest about them. And the chief priest says, since the people began to bring their contributions to the temple of the Lord, we've had enough to eat and plenty to spare because the Lord has blessed his people and this great amount is left over. That's so different from the widow giving and having nothing left over. Oh, she's given all that she had to eat. She's given all that she had to live on. She's probably lost her house. No, when it's done in faith, when it's done in the right way, actually there's plenty. It's miraculous. There's miraculous, faith-filled, generous giving. It starts with Hezekiah. It might be, it might be you look at your circumstances and you look at your finances and you, and you might be thinking, well, there's, okay, there's a gift there coming up. But to be honest, I'm looking at this and, you know, it, it seems impossible for me to give toward what God's doing with us as a church. You know, maybe you've got student loans. Maybe there's other debt. Maybe there's family circumstances. I would say, what's God saying to you? What, what's he putting in your heart? What desire is he putting in you? Because that's the place to start. Because actually, if you're reluctant, if in your heart you don't want to give anyway, then not having enough to be able to give is just nice, it's a nice convenient excuse. You can just say, oh I, oh, I really wish I could, but I can't. Do you know what? You don't even have to say that. Because the whole point is, you don't have to. If it's not in your heart to give, just don't give. There's, there's honestly the freedom to do that. There really is. Because God's looking at our hearts. He's not looking at the outward show. He's not looking at us, oh, we're going to come forward and oh, and they didn't come forward. They didn't give. They didn't. I was looking at the basket and they didn't put anything in. That's not what God's looking at. He's looking at our heart. So what's, what's in our heart? Have we got a desire to give? If we have a desire to give, then let's recognize, like David, we don't have anything apart from what gi God gives us. He's the one who owns all things and he's the one who provides all things. He's well able to provide. And and, and ask him. Ask him to provide. People were doing that last week. It was wonderful to hear. People saying, do you know what? I'm, in, I'm struggling in debt, but I'm just praying to God that he, he enables me. He, he blesses me. Not so that I can just get out of debt, but so that I can give. That was what was in their heart. And, that, and that's what God's looking for, a heart response. If your desire is to want to give, earnestly seek God, the God who owns all wealth. That's what we see in 2 Corinthians and chapter 8. And we've read this fairly recently, but let's look at it. Second Corinthians in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Paul now. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God's given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify they, were, they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us 
for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. So what's going on with these Macedonians? There's a very severe trial. There's extreme poverty. Ah, well, they can't give, can they? They can't give. And actually, Paul, it, it, it seems, said that to them. Look, Macedonians, we understand what you're going through. We're going to take this offering up. It was for the, for the uh, poor in Jerusalem, and the f there was a famine going on. But it's okay. You've got problems of your own. You don't have to give because they were going through it. But they've got the grace of God in them. And that wells up in overflowing joy. And so what happens? Regretful non-participation. Oh, well, we really wish. We'll pray for you. We really wish that we could help. No. What wells up is rich generosity. They gave as much as they could. They gave beyond their ability. They gave more than they could give. How does that work? How can you give more than you can give? It has to be supernatural provision by God. Did they feel pressured to give by Paul? No. It was entirely on their own. In fact, Paul says they pleaded with him to be able to give. And they exceeded their expectations. There's no heavy pressure from Paul. There's a desire welling up in the Macedonians. We want to be part of this. We want to give. We're not sure we can. But we want to. So we're seeking God and we're praising God and we're going to be joyful. And then God enabled them to do it. Even more than they were able to do. Do you see the difference? It's not pressure. It's not leadership saying you have to. It's spiritual people saying I want to. And then God supernaturally giving them the ability. Just as we come towards an end, I just want to tell a story. And, and for, again, forgive me if I've told it. I know I've told this before. But maybe not everyone's heard it. And uh, this is a story of our former church leader back in England in Sheffield. He came in 1997 uh, to lead our church. And he, uh, very, very quickly after that, he led us into a very similar time that we're in now, really, where we bought an old synagogue and began to renovate it as a, as a building. And uh, similarly to us now, we had a building to sell, but that wasn't going to cover the cost of the whole renovations. Uh, so we would uh, gather weekly and we would pray um, and, we would, and we would ask God to provide this money. And, uh, and he, he very clearly said, look, and the church had been going through a tough time. And he, he, he very clearly said, look, you know, you don't have to give. I know many of you aren't able to give. It's fine. Don't, we're going to pray, though. We're going to seek God for this. And so we'd meet and we'd pray. And it actually, it was a time when the spirit was being poured out in, in, uh, in kind of extraordinary ways. So we would, we would often gather to pray, and we'd have every intention of praying about the finances of the church, and we'd end up just worshiping God and enjoying him, and all sorts of things were going on. But miraculously, the money would come in month by month. And uh, each month, we were left with nothing in the bank, and we'd start again, and we'd know we'd got a deadline to pay. Oh, it's 50,000 pounds at the end of this month, and we've got nothing. And we'd pray, and the money would come in, and we'd be able to pay it off. And uh, during this time, Arnold, uh, who led the church, and his wife, Mary, discovered that their roof, they'd only just bought their house the year before, their roof had got old wooden beams in, and they discovered it was totally rotten. And it wasn't covered by any insurance that they had, and the cost was going to be £12,000 to fix it. 
But they hadn't got £12,000. They hadn't got any money. They'd been uh, giving in towards what we were doing as a church. So they didn't not got any spare money. But there was a lawyer in the church, and the lawyer said, uh, do you know what? You could sue the building inspector, because he looked at the report that the building inspector did. And he said, you could sue him because uh, he was pretty vague about most things in your house, but he really loved your roof. And he said how wonderful it was and what a great condition it was in. And he says, look, he's kind of waxing lyrical about this roof. And uh, you've got, you've got, you're easily going to be able to sue him and you're going to be able to get the 12000 to fix your roof. And he says, don't worry about him because he's going to have his own insurance. So it's all going to be good. And so that's the way that Arnold was going to go. It makes sense, doesn't it? And uh, that's what he was going to do until he got a phone call from the wife of one of the elders of the church. And she said she'd been praying about the situation. And she felt God say this inspector had never really known the grace of God, never understood it, never seen the grace of God in his life. And she felt Arnold, she said, you've got to weigh this, but Arnold, I feel you're to demonstrate the grace of God to him by contacting him, telling him about your roof, telling him he's liable, and then saying, you're going to let him off, and you're not going to sue him. And he's going to understand something of the grace of God. Um, and so that's what Arnold thanked her. He gulped. <laughs> he sat down with his wife, Mary, to pray about it, and they both felt that that was what God was saying to them. So that's what they did. He called the inspector. He explained the situation. He said, the guy started to get defensive. He said, no, 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 just a minute. He said, y you're clearly at fault. He said, but we're not suing you. The guy went, what? And then he, he explained the gospel. He told us about how God comes to us and how even though our sin leaves us liable and we're guilty before God and leaves us with a huge unpayable debt, we've, we've received grace and mercy from God and Jesus has paid it all through the sacrificial death of himself on the cross. And he explained the gospel to him. And this guy really didn't say anything. And so he put the phone down. <laughs> and he thought, well, God speak to him. No idea what the end of that story was from his perspective. <sighs> but then he thinks, well, God, I still need 12,000 pounds. <laughs> That's great. But I need 12,000 pounds to pay for my roof. The next week, he got a letter in the mail from someone he hardly knew from a town he used to live in, who knew nothing of this situation, it must be said. He was a Christian who got it from, but not from his church, not from his old church. And this letter said they'd recently received an inheritance. And they said, we don't really need it. So we prayed about it, and we felt God say to give it to you. And so we've enclosed it in a check. And in the letter was a check for 27,000 pounds, enough to pay for the roof, and another 15,000 that he could give towards the work of God. Everything we have comes from God. It all comes from God. If we have a desire in our heart to serve him and to follow him and to love him and to give generously, he enables us to do it. Let's go back to First Chronicles. What happens when the people have given of all their, of all their gifts? Well, they give more of what they have, and they have a party. We don't have a sense of any nothing left to live on. It says, the next day they made sacrifices to the Lord, presented burnt offerings to him, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand male lambs, together with their drink offerings and other sacrifices, and they ate and drank with great joy in the presence of the Lord on that day. 
They had a party. They celebrated. And I tell you, when we heard stories about Arnold's roof, and there were others from other people in the church as well, we celebrated. It was a great time. It was an exciting time to be around. Yes, we were renovating a building, but it wasn't about a building. God was building the church. He was teaching us about grace. He was teaching us about faith. He was teaching us about how he's a God who provides. He was teaching us about joy. He was teaching us about enjoying his spirit as it's being poured out at the time. That's what he was doing in us. He was building us together as a church. And at the same time, we were putting a building together where we could house some of what God was doing in us. That's the journey we're on right now. It's exciting. And it's scary. And we have to hear the encouragement that David gave to Solomon. Be strong. Be courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. So next week and the following week, we're just kick-starting really what we're seeing God doing with this building. And as, as Joe said, it's not the only opportunities we're going to have. So if you can't give at that point, th there's opportunities later. I suspect like the Israelites, we'll be giving our heaps between the third and the seventh month. <laughs> but I want you to know that we as leaders want to be and should be those who lead the way in this. But God's giving us all an invitation to enter in and play a part. You don't have to. You're very welcome to be a spectator in what God's doing. It will still be exciting. Brent and myself and Ollie last year went to Minnesota. We watched an NFL football playoff game. Became known as the miracle in Minnesota. It was a very exciting game. It, we loved it. It was thrilling. How much more thrilling to have been playing in it? I mean, we were excited watching it. But how much more thrilling to have been in it? How much more thrilling to have been getting the final touchdown, the winning touchdown? Well, we're looking to see the miracle in Fredericton this year. And those of us who are leading are in the game. We've got to be in the game. And we're on the field. But you know what? There's room for us all. There's room for us all, for everyone who wants to come down and join us. But you've got to know, please, please know, we're not putting anyone under pressure. We're not wanting to do what Jesus was condemning the teachers of the law for. This isn't some heavy religious duty that's been imposed on you, which causes us just to be miserable or worse still, people to lose their homes or not be able to provide for their families. We're going into a time where it's a joyful, faith-filled time, trusting in a supernatural God who not only pours out supernatural resources financially, but also the joy of the Spirit as we give generously, more than we could ever expect. So it is 12 o'clock, but I think we should celebrate and praise God. So let's do that. Why doesn't the band come back up? And let's stand together. We had a great time this morning. Just celebrate. I love some of those. So some of those songs were quite old songs that we sang this morning. But they were great because they were songs about praising God. And we could and rejoice and we could dance to them. So Father God, we thank you that you are a good God. You are a lavish God. You love us. You pour out your gifts to us in so many ways. You've given us mercy and grace. You've given us salvation. You've given us the church. You've given us your spirit dwelling within us. Lord, we can't give anything apart from what you give to us. Lord, do something in our hearts even this morning, I pray. Do something in our hearts, even as we worship you and praise you. 
that we may be stirred to respond in so many ways to your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We love you, God. You're wonderful. Amen. All right.